Welcome to My Fertility Journey, Life Chats with Bianca Bullissian. Welcome to the show. Today is the first Tuesday of 2021, and we are starting this year's podcasts with a bang. This was an amazing conversation that I had with Juliana Osorio. She is a secondary teacher and an endo warrior battling stage four infiltrated endometriosis. She is not a medical doctor, but she has the knowledge of one since she's been dealing with this for half of her life. Juliana has taken to social media to share her story and experience. She is super vocal, she's hilarious, and she's very serious about how things need to change in order for folks suffering from this to be heard, understood, and treated much better and more fairly than they are now. Please enjoy the conversation with this amazing woman I am lucky to now call my friend. Just a quick note before we start, we did have some sound quality issues and had to switch devices, so you will hear some editing um, after a few minutes, and it does get much better after that, so please do enjoy. All right. Hello, Juliana. Thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for um, like agreeing with talking to me and sharing your story. So I'm super excited to, to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I love talking. Yes, that makes both of us. So I think I think we'll have a good time. So um, we I did um, meet you online via social media and Instagram because we share the same um, love to the same acupuncturist here in Toronto. And I think she posted or shared something that that you were um, sharing about your experience and. I sort of went to your account and I related to a lot of what you were sharing in terms of having like period pain and what you're going through is way more than that. So as we're going to learn today, I'm sure, but I related to that part because I do have and always have had terrible periods, never diagnosed, never acknowledged by anyone that that was not a normal thing. So I would love for you to share a bit your story and, and go into how you got into social media where you are now that you're super active and vocal about what you are going through and, and being like a, a big advocate for, for women out there that are suffering like, like you are. Absolutely. I have been up and down on this roller coaster that is endometriosis. And unfortunately, I found, as too many of us find, that I was learning a lot more from other people diagnosed with endo than I was from actual doctors. And so I really wanted to become a more active part of the online community. I decided to make an endo Instagram account 
And I had the grand idea to launch it in March, which is Endometriosis Awareness Month, thinking, oh, this is perfect timing. And then, of course, March is when the apocalypse happened and COVID exploded. So that kind of got overshadowed a touch. But it has been an amazing experience, to be honest. It's a, an um, incredible community. Anybody wants to do in the endo community online is help each other and educate each other and support each other. And it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that you're, that you're doing that. And because I, I do think that we need to, we need to hear um, what is happening and what people are going through. Because like, we don't know. We just, we really don't know. And, um, and even there are, I'm sure a lot of people that have endometriosis that don't have it as bad and probably them also, right? They don't know how bad it can be. So I think it's a big educational uh, moment for all of us, but I'm sure we'll get into sort of like the medical community and all of that. Um, but how did, um, so from, from what you have told me before, it took you 15 years, right, to get a diagnosis. So can we go through that and, and how that happened to you? And because that's a, a whole lot of time of, of a person's life and you're, you're not that old <laughs> at all. So that's like, that's half your life just waiting for a diagnosis. Yes. I was 28 when I got my official diagnosis. I'm 36 right now. So right from the time I started getting my periods, which was uh, in and around 12, almost 13, uh, in definitely by 13, they were horrific. I have very distinct memories of being on the floor of my grade eight classroom in the fetal position because I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. I couldn't function. And being very openly judged, I unfortunately had a male teacher that year and we already didn't get along. So that didn't help. But being judged for <laughs> being dramatic and then this went on into high school. So same deal. It, when I was on my period, in, if I was in school that day, I was on the floor of my classroom in the fetal position in excruciating pain. I had a lot of bleeding, abnormal amounts of bleeding. There was a lot of embarrassment because of, you know, uh, all kinds of stained clothes, stained bed sheets. Like I, I looked like, uh, you know, CSI. My room looked like CSI for a lot of my um, adolescence. And then oh my into God. my 20s, I know. Um, into my 20s, it got worse. Shocking. And I had enough. Uh, and so I started doing my own research. I had a family doctor, a new family doctor, young male, at that time and i said i want a referral to a gynecologist because i am pretty confident i have endometriosis and he refused and said no i don't think that's warranted and i traditionally the first half of my life was very much a doormat so i, I must say that one thing that endo has provided me is uh one hell of a backbone and, and self-advocacy skills because that day 
was very out of character for me then. I said, I'm not leaving this office until I get a referral to a gynecologist. And that worked. So when I went to see the gynecologist, he said, yeah, it definitely sounds like you have endo. Do you want to do an exploratory laparoscopy? I said, yeah, I would like to know. So I was 28. That was um, July 31st, 2012 was my surgery. And the, the official diagnosis of endo came then. And when I went from my post-op, I asked him, where did you find it? And his response was, oh, everywhere. Oh my God. Um, and thus the journey began. So Jules, just in case the listeners didn't hear, can you repeat again, what did a doctor say? <laughs> so when I went for my post-op, he confirmed that it was endometriosis. And when I asked him where he found it, his response was, a direct quote, oh, everywhere. Oh my God. And what was the feeling? Like, do you remember what you felt at that time? I felt a sense of relief because I knew now what it was. I, I felt a definite sense of vindication from the experience I had with that horrible family doctor. So see, it wasn't in my head and it, it was warranted uh, that I see a specialist. And, um, and then, you know, I'm always somebody that I, I can, I can face anything. I just need the information necessary to do so. So now that I had the information necessary, I could, you know, formulate a plan and, and go forward. Yes. Yes. There's just so much to, to, to unpack there just from that experience, right from the beginning where you said, you know, you're curled onto a ball on lying on the your classroom's floor with like no support from the people the adults that are supposed to support you so that alone can like shatter someone's like spirit and soul right and um so like all the credit for you for like being standing and just so strong and resilient I can relate to that because I had to go home. I had to go to the principal's office and call my parents and they had to pick me up at least one day of every month when I had my period and I would just get a painkiller that was like the classic painkiller that all the, the doctors prescribed for menstrual pain. And, and that was it. And I just sat and I remember there was one time in particular that was especially horrible. And I remember telling my mom, I don't know how old I was, probably 14, 15. And I'm like, if you just grab me a knife and I stab myself in my stomach, I think I'll feel less pain than what I'm feeling right now. And and that is not normal, yeah, right? I don't think, right? So how is that, like from your experience now, like so many years later, what do you think is, like, because you've been through the doctors and, and, and dragged through like all of that and all these procedures and all these opinions, right, of people that should know better. Um, why do you think it's still like that? Um, the, the big picture answer in, in my opinion is, is systemic misogyny. There is a horrific lack of education amongst doctors. And I know because they've told me, um, most doctors in med school, endometriosis gets like a, a paragraph of a page of a textbook. It's a 10 minute lesson that they get in med school. 
So that is systemic. That means that it's not prioritized and it's not prioritized because it's associated as a woman's health issue, very specifically a woman's reproductive health issue. And that is why it does not get attention. It does not get the amount of uh, awareness spread. It, the same amount of humans have endometriosis as, as diabetes. Wow. One is vastly more, you can ask anybody on the street what diabetes is, they can tell you. There's no reason why endometriosis should not, not have the same spread and general knowledge amongst the public. But there's a very specific reason why it doesn't, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Yeah. That's yeah. It's very interesting. It's to to me and how so in it. I know it's a deep conversation, and we're sort of jumping ahead a bit. But do you have um, any idea of what are like what are the policies? What should we be looking at in terms of of policies to to change how it is today? Because I'm sure there's there's enough people to to sort of gather, right, and bring that awareness and try to, to start, start including things where they, they should be happening. So where, where, do, you, where do you stand on that, on, as, as far as you know, of course? I think political pressure is really important. I think that, you know, one in 10 is a, is a big number. So if one in 10 people with endometriosis write to an MPP or an MP, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I think mobilizing, you know, all of the endo warriors out there, and there are a lot of us, um, yeah. is in a very important step and applying consistent pressure. Because ultimately, yeah. what, what baffles me is ultimately it's costing the system more to ignore it than it, than it would to just address it. Educate your doctors, compensate your specialists so that there are more specialists. Yeah. Because then you don't have people in, in my situation, for example, and I'm not I'm not alone in this, where because it went undiagnosed for so long and because my first surgery was not done properly, mm. there is now, you know, residual damage. I have uh very deep infiltrative endo. Uh, it, it, my last surgery, I've had two. My last surgery was done in July of 2017 and it was everywhere on my bladder. Uh, I almost had to have a stint put in my, in my uh, kidney tubes, which is not the medical term, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> all over my bowels, right? So that, it wouldn't get to that point if I was, well, if I was listened to when I was 13, but yeah. barring that, then if I was treated properly, you know, when I was first diagnosed. Yes. But now I'm more of a burden on the system because I have, you know, much more internal damage. Yes. And the constant, the constant consultations, all of that cost money, right? Um, I just want to clarify the one in 10 is that one in 10 women, is that a statistics in Canada? Or is that a, a worldwide, roughly? It is worldwide. And it's, and it's okay. becoming actually more and more now. Um, there, more research is, leading, is leaning towards one in nine. But as it stands right now, it's still one in 10. Yeah. If you consider the amount of people that are undiagnosed, 
it, it's probably even more than that. Exactly. It could be one, it could be one in six for all we know. Right. Yep, yeah. Absolutely. So if we can just take a step back, it's my fault. I went like way ahead and we're like starting to like tell people to vote and we're already <laughs> on like the, <laughs> the end of the activism spectrum, which I love. But can we take a step back and um, explain to people what endometriosis is? And if you know, because you talk about yours being an infiltrated endometriosis, and if you know of the, of the different part, different types, I also heard there's a silent endometriosis that sort of doesn't present symptoms, anything that you, that you're, because I know you have so much knowledge to offer. So just that basic base sick for people that have never um, heard Absolutely. about it. Yeah. So endometriosis is when um, tissue that is similar to the endometrial lining of your uterus, but is not the same. There are cellular differences. So this is a big, big piece of, of misinformation that's out there that it is your uterus, the lining of your uterus in your pelvis. It is not, it's, it's not the same. Um, but it is in, in and around um, your pelvis, and it could be in, in, a, in various locations. So there are different stages of endometriosis, stages one through four. And basically the stage corresponds to how much there is and where it is. So stage one is generally speaking like just, um, just on the ovaries. Um, or fallopian tubes or uterus itself. And then it, it kind of uh, expands uh, out of there. But the stage does not correspond to the symptoms. So for example, a woman could have stage one endometriosis and be in excruciating pain and have stage four and not have any symptoms. Oh, interesting. Um, a lot of women with endometriosis do not experience symptoms. And it's usually uh, diagnosed in that case, incidentally. So for example, I have a friend of mine who found out when, after she had her first baby because mm -hmm. uh, she went for ultrasounds when she was pregnant and they're like, oh, there's something on your ovary. And then afterwards, um, it was discovered that it was an endometrioma, which is a, a cyst uh, filled with the endometriosis uh, you know, tissue. So anyway, so that's when, uh, and a, a lot of women who don't necessarily experience physical symptoms or don't know that they're experiencing physical symptoms, find it incidentally when they struggle with infertility. That's usually when it comes out, right? Yes. So it's yeah. not necessarily the, the intense pain, but, uh, you know, there's fertility issues. And then once they start kind of go down the exploratory journey, that's when they find out. Yeah. And um, that's why the endometriosis and the, the fertility community are so tied together, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Very, yeah. very closely tied. Yeah. Um, and it, it, as more research is coming out, it's not enough and it's too late, but you know, we, we beg for the scraps that we can get. And to be honest, the two countries leading the world in endometriosis research are Australia and the UK. So most of the most recent, most important research is coming out of, of those two countries. Um, wow. And they have studied um, unborn uh, fetuses and have found that in 10% of unborn female fetuses, they have found endometriosis. 
Oh, wow. Right. So it's so it is something you're born with. Yeah, this is what this is what um, more and more research is leaning towards. Because as of right now, you know, if you ask the experts are like, we don't know why this happens. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Shoulder shrug emoji. <laughs> yes. uh, sorry. Um, so that research, as little as there is, is very important. Um, yeah, to lead more medical experts down the proper paths. Okay, that's really interesting. And it is something that only targets women. Yeah, so um, so far as we know, <laughs> it, there has been endometriosis found in men. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, as of right now, primarily, you know, people, people who have uh, female sex organs at birth. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. Very interesting. And um, there was something I was going to ask. Oh yeah. The, there's a big misconception, right? That the, the endometriosis is only on the reproductive organs, but it can have, you can have it everywhere. Like you said with your doctor, uh, your doctor's very technical diagnosis. <laughs> and yes. So how was, so can you explain a little bit about that? And then what are the symptoms? Like, is it worse when it spreads out and how is the, um, the care behind that? Right. So yes, it can be found and it has been found everywhere. The only organ that has not been recorded to have endometriosis found on it during surgery is the spleen for some weird reason, but literally every other organ. So uh, it has been found in uh, lungs. It has been found on the brain. It has been found uh, on all the major pelvic organs, kidney, liver. Uh, the diaphragm is pretty common. Um, so yeah, it can definitely, it, it, it knows how to travel. Um, yes. if, uh, and the pain or the symptoms then obviously kind of vary depending on what it is. So, um, somebody with thoracic endometriosis, uh, might experience, uh, pain when they, uh, breathe or if they inhale sharply. Uh, somebody like in my case with endometriosis of my bladder and my bowel, um, before my last excision surgery, anytime my bladder was full, I, I was bent over in pain. Um, I still have issues now with it attached to my bowel. Uh, I have a lot of um, what was misdiagnosed for years as irritable bowel syndrome, which now I know, no, but it was not that. Um, but a lot of kind of gastro uh, yeah. attacks, um, so to speak. But yeah, it absolutely can be and has been found on every single organ except the spleen. Okay. And then that contributes to like very confusing um, symptoms, like you being diagnosed with, with IBS, but it's actually endometriosis. That's very tricky. Yeah. And then what is, so once you found out, so you did the, the surgery and then on that surgery, is that the one that they messed up a bit? That first one? 
can you explain a little bit more? Because you would think, of course, like I'm not an expert. We're, we're both not medical people, but you would think that, okay, it's an extra tissue. You go in, you see it, you cut it off out you go and you're fine. And it's, it's definitely not what happens. So can you explain a little bit about like, how are the, pro the procedures? How can one mess up that procedure? And then how do you end up needing one after the other, after the other? Yeah. I would love to discuss this because <laughs> it's so important uh, for people to get the right care. So my first surgery was done by a general gynecologist, an OBGYN. Um, I mean, I owe him in terms of him being uh, listening to me and saying, okay, I'll go in. Uh, and, and because something that's very, very important for people to know is that the only way that endometriosis can be actually officially diagnosed is through laparoscopic surgery. The surgeon has to see it with their eyes. So no ultrasound, no blood test, no MRI, nothing is an official diagnosis until it is surgically diagnosed, number one. Number two, my, that first surgeon, although diagnosed me because could clearly see it, um, performed an ablation surgery. So an ablation surgery is essentially burning the implants. Okay, so every time he saw it, uh, he burned it, which is a very superficial, inefficient treatment because it doesn't take care of the actual endometriosis. And then what it does is creates more scar tissue, which are known as adhesions. Yes. So that is unfortunately extremely common right now because most OBGYNs are not trained to perform what is needed, which is excision surgery. Okay. Excision surgery is the gold standard of treatment for endometriosis as it stands right now. And what that means is the surgeon goes in with a very specific set of tools and cuts out the actual endometriosis where they find it. Now this can get pretty tricky because, you know, it's attached to very delicate specimens, you know, like ovaries, like my bladder, my bowel, my ureters, like, you know, all, all of these yeah. things. So it requires a lot of training. As of right now in Ontario, there are only a handful of surgeons who are trained in this excision surgery. Wow. Which is a big problem because there are a lot of us who need it and only a couple of doctors who are capable. I went through five different surgeons before I found my current surgeon because I kept getting turned away because they said, I am not qualified to do this. Okay. I'm sorry. Try, try again. So it which was, is, which technically is better than someone doing it and not knowing, but it's still not even close to the ideal situation. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. It is, it's definitely better than someone thinking that they can do it and making it worse. You're correct. Um, but it was an excruciating year um, to go through. Uh, and I've asked my current surgeon because he trains other surgeons on how to do this. And I've asked him, why are there not more surgeons qualified for this surgery? And his, his very um, honest answer was, they're, they're not compensated. 
like other surgeons are. So it's considered a high risk surgery, which makes sense because there's a lot of delicate organs involved and they don't get compensated the way other surgeons are because the risk isn't considered worth it. So for example, an oncologist is insured and is compensated because the risk is considered worth it because they're removing cancer. So even if they damage an organ, it's okay because they're removing cancer. Not the same in the endometriosis surgery world. Interesting. Which again is a much bigger systemic problem. But we'll we'll put that on hold for now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh God, it's yeah, it's a lot. The the second surgery, how did that go? Much better uh, in terms of you know I finally had somebody who knew what he was doing. Um, and but my 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 surgery report was six pages long. Wow. Because there was a lot, um, and it, it took a, a long time. And um, it was, you know, every time, because the first surgery was not done correctly, this surgery was corrective first, and then addressing, you know, the, the actual problem. So you're, you're always behind, right? Yes. Um, which is why you know, between my first and my second surgery, there was five years, but now I'm awaiting my third surgery and it's only been three years between my last surgery and now. I was supposed to have it in and around June, but because of COVID it was canceled. So I'm awaiting a date for the third surgery now still. So what are, what is the difference? So from the first surgery, like before and after, and then the second surgery before and after, like, is it, is it, progressing like in sorry in a good way I, when it's a condition progressing i guess it's not a good thing but your your you know what i mean like your yeah. symptoms are they getting better did it make a difference or like you said you're just constantly playing catch up yep there's definitely a lot of that um unfortunately i my situation was complicated because i was put on two different types of hormone therapy so I'll backtrack a little to explain that. After my surgery in 2012, um, my recovery was pretty quick in terms of, you know, getting back to life. About three weeks after I was functioning again, um, I was put on birth control at the time, which is very common in the endometriosis world. And I went about my life thinking, okay, well, this is the treatment. We know what it is. This guy knows what he's doing because I was young and stupid. And I, at that time, I was pretty fit. I was working out, running, had a, had a, had a healthy lifestyle, had a, what was, con, you know, what's considered a healthy BMI, although I have major issues with the BMI. But anyway, um, yeah. in the medical world, you know, um, and then the birth control stopped working in terms of my, my symptoms started to come back. And that first surgeon said, listen, if you start to feel that kind of pain again, you know, tell your family doctor that you need another referral and you need to see a gynecologist and, and you need to like, you know, get on it. And okay, fine. So I was with 
my second family doctor mm-hmm. didn't listen to me. So I said, listen, I have been surgically diagnosed with endometriosis. I've been on birth control. I was told by the last surgeon, if my symptoms come back, to get another referral to see a gynecologist again. That was another fight, but anyway, I see one. That gynecologist puts me on Vizan. So Vizan is a very common, uh, I think, you know, prescription for women with endometriosis. And essentially what it does, I mean, I think everybody knows birth control 101 that, you know, it, it tricks your body into thinking you're pregnant. But Vizan is like that on steroids. So because the only time that endometriosis doesn't progress is when your ovaries are in not functioning, which is when you're pregnant or when you're in menopause. Okay. So Vizan put me chemically into a state of pregnancy uh, in terms of tricking, tricking my you know, chemistry, hormones. my body yeah, hormones, yeah. right? So I gained 70 pounds when I was on Vizan. Oh my God. Because I thought I was pregnant, but uh, which is fine in pregnancy, except I was not growing a human. Yeah. Uh, so it did not have the same functionality. Like I have no one to nurture these 70 pounds with. <laughs> I can't oh see my, my God. Anymore, but it's not for any cute reason. And like, I'm not doing any you know, Instagram photo shoots. So anyway, so that was an issue. So the weight gain caused other issues in and of themselves because um, it happened so quickly. Mm. Um, because fat, fat cells in your body, fat stores estrogen. Yes. So an estrogen feeds endometriosis. So I became my own self-feeding ecosystem the more weight i gained oh my god right so you can see where this is going so it got worse and then after my excision surgery in 2017 the proper surgery we said okay endo our uh, vizan stopped working wasn't working caused all these issues so now we're going to put you on lupron which is Another common uh, treatment, and you know the old saying: "If I knew then what I know now, mm. it's a very big regret of mine that I didn't educate myself on either of these hormone therapies. I just trusted people who have degrees that should know what these things do to a body, because Lupron." So Vizan put me into chemical pregnancy. Lupron put me into chemical menopause. And at this point, I'm free in chemical menopause. Lupron is also used as a chemotherapy drug for men with prostate cancer. Not something that they tell you up front either. So when I was on Lupron, that caused all kinds of other issues. It's a, it, uh, my blood sugar went bananas. Mm. Uh, I was losing my hair. I uh, had pretty much every terrible side effect that you can imagine. Um, and I really was at the end of my rope. I actually ended up going to London, England be, uh, and going to an endometriosis clinic. The whole building is just for endometriosis patients. Wow. And I met a specialist in the UK who told me that in the UK, uh, it's illegal for women to be on Lupron for longer than six months. Um, because it is so damaging. Uh, they only use it as kind of like a kind of emergency treatment for women who, who are awaiting surgery. 
How long were you on it for? I was on it for two and a half years. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately my case then, you know, was complicated by the effect that both of these kind of extreme hormone therapies had on my body. So I wish that my case was as straightforward as first surgery was not great. Second surgery was great and everything was so much better after. Um, but it has not been that linear a journey for me. Uh, so I'm still, I'm still dealing with repercussions of, of those hormone therapies. And I will not ever, ever do another hormone, hormone therapy ever again. And my surgeon knows that very, mm -hmm. he's um, very accepting of that. He's never fought me on it. He's like, yep, your body, your choice. What a concept. Yeah, and exactly. That's kind of where we're at today. <laughs> okay. And then you're in line waiting for the next surgery where they're going to go in and it's going to be similar to the second one and hopefully a bit more successful because they won't have to fix the damage from the first surgery. That's where you're standing at now. Yeah, that's the hope. And also um, to see, to get an idea of how much involvement, is, how much damage there has been done to my bowels, and then to determine if I have to have a surgery with a bowel specialist. Yes. Okay. Well, that, yeah, that sounds intense. How do you, um, how does this all affect you? Because you're a teacher, if you can share a little bit about like your job and your day to day, and how does this affect you and um, parts of your cycle that are worse and how you manage um, through that? And if you can share a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely noticed. So I'm a very involved teacher. I'm a secondary teacher and I do everything. I, I coach I direct the school play. I teach drama, which is a very, I call it cardio teaching. Um, I never sit down. Um, I also was running an experiential learning program. So I took my kids camping. Like there was a, a very, very active teacher. Um, and I noticed uh, from 2016 to 2017 that I was very, um, I was dragging myself. Um, I was so tired. I was so um just not not able to cope like i used to be able to um i sh <laughs> so to add to this fun <laughs> medical history in may of 2017 i had a partial thyroidectomy because i had thyroid cancer so i had the right and middle lobe of my thyroid removed because i had thyroid cancer which <laughs> None of my, none of the specialists think that the two are related, even though there's a lot of research that shows how endometriosis is connected to the endocrine system, but every specialist thinks that their part of the body is the only part of the body that exists separate yes. from everything else. Anyway, so that didn't help. So the summer of, so I had in May of 2017, I had my thyroidectomy and then July of 2017, I had my excision surgery. So over that summer, I was like, I can't, I can't go back to, to work because I just don't have the energy. And I, and I couldn't, I, I'm not a half-assed teacher. I don't do anything half-assed. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a different disease I have. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
So I actually looked uh, in my board, we have like a, a, a job posting site and I looked um, and I applied for a job on the assistive technology team because I didn't want to go on medical leave again. I was only on medical leave for a couple of months and I hated it because you know, you think it's a nice vacation, but really it's just me sitting at home staring at the wall with my own thoughts, which is not fun. <laughs> and I wanted to work and, and you know, yeah. feel useful and like I'm contributing. So um, it, the, this, my health literally changed the course of my career because I couldn't do and teach um, what I normally did. So uh, I have been on the assistive technology team for my board, which has allowed, I've been very grateful for because it's allowed me to continue to work, but not uh, with the same physical demands, you know, that, that teaching uh, had on me. I absolutely plan on returning to the classroom once I, you know, feel better, whatever that is, uh, we'll see. Yes, I hope so. I hope you do get there. Uh, do you have any, um, like through these years, did you develop anything that helped you, any kind of system or thought that helped you cope mentally throughout all this? Because that's a lot of shit to deal with. That young too. This shit is hard. Yeah. Um, honestly, the online community, uh, I know I mentioned it before, but it's it's a massive, massive help to know that you have genuine support from absolute total strangers. You know, when you're diagnosed with endometriosis, you become part of a club that you never asked to be a part of, but your club members are amazing. Um, so that definitely honestly has helped. Um, I... It, I've always been somebody with a lot of empathy and, uh, and compassion for other people, but this definitely sharpens that, <laughs> that tool. Yes. Um, it's not helpful to tell somebody that it could always be worse, but I think in my head of like, you know, and I, I look at other women and, and I follow other women and talk to other women who do have it worse, like women who have had their bladders removed, who have had uh, intense, intense bowel resection surgery, you know, that are, are in and out of the hospital every other month, right? I, that's not me. Um, so gratitude, you know, for where I am, even though it's not fun, but it's, I'm still standing, um, yes. so to speak. It, it makes you uh, very resilient. Uh, yeah. It really does. To the, it shows, it really does show on your uh, yeah and just just looking at you it's very inspiring is there anything else that you'd like to say in terms of the advo advocacy to for women and like any message that you have out there like if someone is listening to this let's do this in two parts if okay. someone is listening to this and they are in a position where you were in the beginning where like people weren't taking you seriously and thinking that you were dramatic and that's just a problem in general with society against women um regardless of what they're going through but what would you what would you tell them okay lots um <laughs> number one nobody 
nobody, I don't care who they are, I don't care how many letters they have by, uh, after their name, I don't care how many medical degrees they have, nobody knows your body better than you do. If something is wrong and you know that something is wrong, don't take no for an answer. Unfortunately, we are left to fight for ourselves and to be our own advocates. But that self-advocacy piece is very, very crucial. Who the hell knows where I would be right now if, if I didn't, you know, oh God, seven, eight, nine years ago in that doctor's office say, I'm not leaving this office until you give me a referral. If I had accepted no, and this disease progress without me knowing, you know, who knows where I would be right now. Um, number one. Number two, unfortunately, again, we are left in the position where we have to do our own research, but you have to do your own research. Do not accept any, don't put anything in your body until you have researched it thoroughly from credible sources because unfortunately, a lot of sources on the internet anyway, a lot of studies are funded by the drug companies. Yes. So you yeah. need to follow the source. You need to make sure that the studies you are looking at are independently run and not funded by drug companies and be 100% be informed before you accept anything. Yeah, uh, those two are, are think, okay. I think the most important. Yes, I think those are very important in the fertility world as well. I think those are super important. Yeah. Um, put your foot down and then research what you're, what you're doing and what you're taking. And then part two, what would you say to people that are uh, women that are in the same position as you are now? And they're like through the, you know, going through the thick of it and they're in you know, not a good state and how do they, you know, the self-care and the going after community, any advice on those, on those lines? Yeah. Get, get a support system. It's really important. I'm a very independent person. I, I live on my own, you know, I pay my own mortgage. I bought my own car. I, I built my own career and I'm very proud of all those things. But even as someone who's very independent like I am, I need my support system. It's extremely important. Number one. Um, and, and that could be, you know, made up of any spider web of people that you choose. Who cares? Um, yes. Number two, you, you really have to listen to your body cues. I pushed myself for too long and I really crashed hard. Uh, because of it. Like when I, when I ended up, you know, getting my, my, my thyroid cancer diagnosis, I was like, oh my God, look, there really was something wrong. It was, I wasn't just tired. Yeah, um, no kidding. Right. So your the body, the, the body is, a, is an incredibly amazing thing. And it is so much smarter than we are. And it will tell you, and we need to listen when it tells us something's wrong. So if you're tired, rest. If you need to be in bed all day and watch, you know, 25,000 episodes mm -hmm. of 
modern family, do it if that's what you need. Yes. And then, you know, you find there's a lot of trial and error, unfortunately, but it's worth it to find out what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, because everyone is so different too, right? We can hear stories of other people with the same on the same journey, but you you're still your journey is still so unique on its own, right? So you have to learn how to um, to read the signs, like you said, and and listening to your body is so important. We're not taught we're not taught that from nope. from when we're kids. That's really what we should be learning in school. Jules, thank you so much for sharing. I, I, I'm sure, I hope one day soon we'll be able to like sit in a cafe and have a coffee or tea together. I hope <laughs> We're both so. high-fiving. Right? <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. I hope so. The world, the world should settle down at some point. But meanwhile, we'll keep in touch. And um, if we can wrap it up with... Do you have a favorite book or a quote or a TV series, like anything or a saying, anything that has like helped you through any part of your journey? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would say number one, my, uh, I only have two tattoos, but one of them says the show must go on. I'm a big theater geek. Um, I'm a theater major. Shocking. I know. Uh, and, (laughs) I think it really, you know, every once in a while when you're, you know, everything's going to shit, world keeps spinning, the show must go on, right? We got to find a way. And the second is one that's kind of like been with me since I was a teenager. I really loved Ani DeFranco. I still love Ani DeFranco. And one of my favorite songs ever is Joyful Girl by Ani DeFranco. And uh, there's a line in it that says, the world owes me nothing. We owe each other the world. And uh, I think it's absolutely true. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. And then if people want to find you online, um, I'm going to put it on the show notes and everything, but if you can give them your, your handle and everything. Absolutely. I never even thought of that. I'm so new to this world. It is Endo Days Ontario. Endo, E-N-D-O dot d-a-y-s dot ontario on instagram perfect yes and we'll try and maybe get together sort of put together maybe some resources that i can put with the episode notes that that people can can look especially the the new people that you said that need to so reliable stuff for people to read Absolutely. Jules thank you so much um Anne was right and Anne was right she's like that girl knows more than the doctors your conversation is going to be amazing so I'm sure we'll have many more of these but um thank you for now thanks for being here thank you so much so one thing I haven't shared much about is that I didn't really know much about endometriosis until I started having trouble conceiving and joined the community on Instagram and Facebook. The amount of people suffering from endo and infertility is mind-blowing. I then started researching and it makes total sense that I have it and it could very likely be the cause of why we couldn't conceive naturally. 
In my case, I was never diagnosed. Besides my one to two days in bed doubled in pain during my period, I didn't really have any other symptoms, or so I thought. So I never, I was never referred to a specialist to investigate. Today, I have this pain that Juliana was talking about, um, that like if I hold my pee for a while, I have this pain on my abdomen, especially during the night, right? Because we don't go to the washroom as often as during the day. And on my upper ribs, especially my left side, I... I, that started about two to three years ago, and I've been working on it with my osteopath, and we just can't figure out what it is. So it could very well be ando on my diaphragm or around my bladder, um, just like Juliana was saying, that is very common. I brought it up to my fertility doctor recently, but right now we're so far into the IVF procedures and the journey that, and especially with COVID too, with all the surgeries being incredibly delayed, that it just wouldn't make sense to stop and, and look into it. Like Juliana mentioned, one of the mysterious cures for endo, which is not for everyone, but a lot of cases, is to just get pregnant. And then afterwards, it just heals itself. So I'm not sure exactly medically how that happens, but I would ask you um, if you can join me in cheers to a healthy pregnancy and a baby for 2021. And hopefully these symptoms that I have that I suspect are endometriosis will disappear. So cheers to that. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to head to Juliana's Instagram and check her out learn and share, look into the petitions and policies in your area about awareness around women's health. Every vote matters and these Ando warriors really deserve it. Take care everyone and I hope that this is the beginning of a wonderful year for everyone. This podcast wouldn't be up and running if it wasn't for the help of a few very special people. You can find my special thanks to them all at myfertilityjourney.ca. And if you want to keep in touch, find me on Instagram on at myfertilityjourney.ca. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, leave a review to support the show, and share it with anyone you think might benefit from it. Love you all and I'll see you soon.